House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And on the line now is Cloyd Stagger. Thank you for being here. Sure, thank you, Peter. Ah, Cloyd. So I see now, uh, now in your first book, uh, Homicide, um, a view from inside the yellow tape, um, that was a that was a great book, and you've got a follow up coming out here. Um, Seattle's forgotten serial killer, Gary Jean Grant. Um, wow, and that is true uh, because most people, if you talk about Seattle and serial killer, that's not the name that'll come up. So no, I yeah, I, us- no, I usually think of uh, Ted Bundy or Gary Ridgway, and I'd never yeah. really heard of Gary Jean Grant. Of course, I, I tell people all the time that. 80% of serial killers, nobody in the world's ever heard of them because they're not the big names, right? There, there are many serial killers out there that kill three, four, five, and are serial killers, but nobody knows them, nobody's ever heard of them. And so that, people think every serial killer is a famous person, they're not. Yeah, and it still makes you wonder why certain people make that, that, that list somehow where it sticks out and they get movies and they get talked about for years and years while right. others don't. Um, right. A lot of it depends on who their victims are and also depends on how much, you know, a lot of times serial killers are operating in an area and the people don't even know what's going on. The police might know, but it doesn't get out. Like with uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, when that was going on, it was a fiasco at first because these cameras were were, were here that they're doing surveillance and they filmed the detectives doing surveillance and, and it was just a nightmare. And because, you know, the sheer numbers is one of the problems. But uh, but now it's better. You know, it's much better if you're the police to work in quiet when nobody knows. I mean, you have to balance out public safety, and you can put out generic. You know, never do this, never do that. But you, it's a lot easier to work on serial killer cases if nobody knows you're doing it. <laughs> and and why why is that? Is it because of the the quacks that come out of the uh, the woodwork, or? Oh, that's part of it. Plus, you know, media it just it gets to be a frenzy. And stuff, and everybody wants all this information, and it just it just becomes a nightmare. You're dealing with uh, outside people are calling in and 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 con- sometimes confessing who didn't do it, which by the way happened in this case of Gary Jim Grant. <laughs> Somebody confessed to two of the murders and was actually charged with them, but uh, but he but but uh, and then or phoning t- in tips that have nothing to do with the case. If somebody really knows about the case. They'll call in, and they're going to call in. When you get calls when it's not a big public case, that's the ones you have to listen to because they don't know it's a big public case. Sometimes people, you know, they know about the individual murders, but they don't know about the ties between them. And uh, sometimes that's a good thing for the police. Why? Why do you think so many quacks do call in uh, fake stuff and and give you yeah. bad leads? You know. Well, they're not all quacks. Some people are honestly trying to do the right thing. And they don't know if it's good information or not. And neither do you when you first get it. But any major, you know, I've worked a lot of really high-profile cases in my career where big media cases and literally the tips come in in the thousands, right? Thousands of tips. And they have to be gone through. And in that, of those thousands, you might find five or six that actually have anything to do with the case. And the people calling in aren't crackpots. They're just people that think they might know something and they're trying to do the right thing. And, you know, if you're in that situation... If you're not sure, it's better to call 
and have it not be in, involved and not to call and have it be the one we're looking for, right? So yeah. I'm not discouraging people from calling in when they think they know something about a case. But it's, you know, in a big high-profile media case, you know, we have to, we have to assign staff of people just to go through the tips and divide them into categories where they can be worked and, you know, separate it out. A lot of the tips you get is nothing you can do about it. You know, I was riding the bus, I saw a guy look like that on the sidewalk. Wow. Yeah. Great. Okay, thanks. There's nothing we can do with that. But sometimes, you know, hey, my, you know, like, for example, my, uh, a big case I had uh, a few years ago where a big media case, a person calls in and we had a car description and we put it on and the person calls in and says, you know, this neighbor of mine has a car just like that and it's an old piece of crap car. And all of a sudden he's covered up with a tarp. Ding, 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 guess what? That was the guy, right? Why is he covering this piece of crap car with tarp and he never had before? Because that information is in the news. That's why he's doing it. So those are the things. Sometimes you know, little gems like that. But in reality, just the nature of the business, you get you get uh, overwhelmed with huge amounts of tips. And then, then tip management is an important part of any big public, you know, high-profile investigation. And you have to assign separate people. You can't have the detectives doing it because they'll be busy reading tips all day long and won't be able to actually investigate the case. There has to be somebody else doing that and screening it, and then just letting the ones that look like they're uh, viable through. Yeah. Now, now, Gary Jean Grant, how did you come across him? Well, here's how I came in. This is the weirdest thing because uh, after my first book came out, I got an email from a guy. And he says, what do you know about Gary Grant? He was a serial killer in Renton, which is a suburb of Seattle, back in the 60s and 70s. And I said, I've never heard of Gary Grant. And so um, he goes, yeah, nobody, I tell people about it, and nobody seems to remember. So in my current job, we keep track of all these murders that happened. It's, it's the Attorney General's Office Homicide Investigation Tracking System. And we have a big database, and I ran all the things in there, and nothing came up. So I called the agencies. We called the agencies that I thought were involved, Renton Police Department and the King County Sheriff's Office. They both had, like, small little things about it, and nobody knew much about it. But then I called the prosecutor's office and asked, do you have a file on this because it was prosecuted? And they go, yeah, I do. They do. And I asked the priority, took it and copied it down. Only... Having no intention of writing a book about it, I was going to put it all on my... We like to keep track of any serial killer we know, whether it happened a long time ago or recently, as part of our database. So we did that to put in the database, and then about a month later, I get a call from uh, History Press. Hey, you know, we saw you write this other book, and we're looking for, for uh, uh, true crime historic things that happen in regions. Do you have anything like that that you'd like to write about? And I thought, oh, my God, well, yeah, I got Gary Chin Grant. So I sent a proposal in, and they said, yeah, write the book. And that's how this all started. It's kind of weird have a publisher call you and ask you to write a book instead of sending them a submission or, or a, a proposal. And, but they called me, and I, and I said I'd do it, and I, I wrote the book and uh, sent it through, and it'll be coming out here in January. That's amazing. Uh, now, so uh, what's the rundown on his story? Like, he uh, killed four, I believe? Yeah, he killed two teenage girls and two six-year-old boys. And he was, uh, he was like 18 when he started this, or at least let me, let me preface that. Well, we know that he started this. He could have killed others before this and, or killed them in between because this is a period of two years, 69 to 71, that he was killing these people. He could have killed others that we don't know about, but we know he did these four. But he would just he was kind of a, a troubled guy. He lived with his parents in a trailer. Down, like I said, Renton is, uh, is 11 miles from downtown Seattle. It's, uh, at that time, it was a small town of, of uh, 10,000 people. And it's where the it's it's where the Boeing there's a Boeing plant there that used to churn out uh, 
B-29s during World War II, then with the 707s, and actually the 737 MAX is made there now, or was, and uh, it's blossomed up to over 100,000. Uh, but you know, Renton's mainly known because Jimi Hendrix is buried there in a cemetery in town, and so that's why most people have even heard of Renton, because of Hendrix, and people you know, make the yeah. pilgrimage to his grave all the time. But anyway, so this Gary Grant lived in this trailer, and he had, his mother was an alcoholic, and his father had been a police officer, a sheriff's deputy down in Pittsburgh for a while. I don't know what happened, but at the time this happened, he was a, like a residential security guard. But it was a pretty, pretty, uh, I don't want to say violent, but it was a, you know, there was a lot of fighting and throwing things and, and, you know, weird stuff going on in his apartment, or his trailer, I'm saying, sorry, and he would, uh, just walk around and roam in the woods. And the first one we know about was on in December, I think December 15, 1969. There was a, a 19-year-old girl named Carol Erickson. She went to the Renton Library downtown, which is on the Cedar River. Actually, the library actually spans the Cedar River. And there's this trail that she took walking about, you know, about two-thirds of a mile back to her apartment. And at the time, it was just an old muddy trail you know, Scotch broom along the river. Now, of course, it's a paved and well-lit promenade and really nice walking place. But back then, she's walking down this muddy trail, and she didn't make it home. And the next morning, some people looking, still fishing in the river, found her nude body on the side of the river. She'd been stabbed and strangled and raped. And so that was the first one. And first of all, nothing like this usually happens in Renton. At that time, especially, I mean, Renton's bigger town now, busier now. But back then, they might go two or three years with no murders. So... And when they did have them, they'd be there smoking gun murder, you know, fighting a bar, domestic violence, where, you know, they, everybody knows who did it right from the beginning. But they were, you had this girl that was uh, murdered, and they found her dead, and it was a big case, and there were, you know, a lot of, there was evidence there, and there were, you know, there, there were only like six detectives on the whole police department, and they were all working it, and um, it went on for a long time, and they, didn't, they just ran out of leads after a while. Then we flash forward ahead to 1970, I believe it was, just outside the city limits of Renton, up on the East Hill. Um, another little, a 17-year-old girl named Joanne Zuloff was home on a Saturday, and she uh, was supposed to go bike riding with a friend. She, she, and she told her mother she was kind of restless. She goes, I'm going to go for a walk before dinner. I'll be right back. And she walked out the front door and was, didn't come home. And so... Uh, a neighbor said he saw her walking past his house and saw her take a trail into some woods that are near there. And so he, uh, the next day, the, the sheriff's office came out and they started to, you know, something was wrong. So they got search and rescue with dogs and everything and started searching that area. And like at midnight on Sunday, they found her nude body in those woods, took up the side of the road. She'd been raped and strangled also, um, and been hit in the head with something, probably a rock. And so they worked that case, and uh, same thing. They knew about the. They actually knew about the Carol Erickson case, the sheriff's detectives, and they called the Renton detectives to kind of, you know, touch base. And yeah, there were some similarities. Actually, you know, in hindsight, there were a lot of similarities. But you know, on the surface, there were some similarities, but they had nothing to match the two cases together. And then that one kind of faded away. I mean, they were still working it, but it didn't. You know, it was all busy at once, and then just kind of cribbles in. And then on a Tuesday. Uh, in April of 1971, it was a uh, one of those teachers' workshop days where there's no school, and six-year-old Scotty Andrews and his good friend, his neighbor Bradley Lyons, were also six, were playing in the morning, 
and they went into some woods near their house. By the way, these three areas are not near each other. I mean, they're generally within a, you know, they're, they're, two of them are in the city limits of Renton, and one is just outside, but, I mean, they're a couple miles apart. They're not the same woods. And they disappeared. And there was a long, you know, big searches that went on for a couple of days. They didn't know what was going on. The, the Cedar River flows right through there. They were afraid that the boys had fallen in the river. But uh, search and rescue went out a couple of days later and found their nude bodies. One of them had been stabbed and strangled. The other had been strangled, covered with dirt and things like that. Uh, not buried, but just covered with brush. So, of course, needless to say, that really set everybody off. These two little boys are, you know, playing in their yard and went out in these woods that they played in all the time and got murdered. Nobody linked any of these three cases together, right? Nobody linked them. But, uh, yeah, in, in the meantime, a guy walked into Valley General Hospital, which is the hospital in Renton, on the night the boys went missing, and he told the doctor in there that he has psychiatric problems, he always has, and he has this urge to hurt children. And so, you know, they treated him and gave him some Thorazine, and we're talking to him in a couple of days, and they still had to find, find these children. The doctor there is thinking, wow, I mean, this guy came in that night and said he wanted to hurt children, and, and I wonder if I can talk. He didn't know if he could talk to the patient, patient uh, doctor patient privilege. But he called the hospital's lawyers, and there was some exception to battered children or something, so he was able to, they were able to call the police. And the police zeroed in on this guy, and his name was John Chance. And at first, when they talked to him, he didn't seem to know much about the case. But they, they sent him down to Harborview, which is in downtown Seattle, uh, where there's a big site board, and he was there. And a day later, so the detectives went and picked him up. And now all of a sudden, he knew a lot of things about the case and wanted to confess to killing these boys. When I was doing my research, I mean, this is, I, I was looking at old newspaper articles, and I realized that in the Seattle paper, the police had released all this information to the media. So he just read this in the paper. He was just regurgitating, regurgitating what he read. That's why you never tell. That's why you never release all those intimate details in the, to the press, because you want to save that one or two things that only the killer would know. And if you ask him questions about it, and, and how his, his response will tell you whether this is the right guy or not. Well, they didn't. They released everything, and then it, it was a fiasco. They ended up charging this guy with the murders. And ironically, um, they, they during the time, while that was going on, the detectives in Renton went back up to the boys' mercy area with explorers, search and rescue people who did shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder evidence search. And in the brush, they found a knife. Butchered, oh, like, not a butcher knife, like a hunting knife. And so the, they collected that knife and took it to the crime lab, and uh, and it, it was it had, a, it had black electrical tape on the handle. When they ended the electrical tape, it had a name etched, in, etched into the handle. They figured out who the guy was. He was a guy that was in the Marine Corps, was off to basic training when the murders happened, but was coming back in a couple of days. So when he came back, they started asking about the knife. He said, oh, I sold it to this kid. This guy's a middle schooler, sitting in Renton. And so they went to talk to him, and he said, uh, basically, he said, I was in the car with my, this guy lives in the same trailer court, and I was in this truck, and I left the knife there, and I forgot about it. And uh, I was, I, I called him and said, hey, you know where my knife is? He goes, oh, my dad found it in the truck, and he has it in his room, and I can't go in the, the, the in his room and get the truck, I mean, get the knife, he'll be mad at me. And he said, well, what's his friend's name? He said, his friend's name's Gary Jean, Gary Grant. So the detectives, even though they had, 
somebody already charged with the case. The detectives were, they were hinky about the guy that was charged. Both of them later said to me, he was a nut. He would have said anything. He agreed with anything he said. So they went to talk to Grant's dad, thinking he might be the guy, because he supposedly had the knife in his possession, and he was a neighborhood patrol officer, you know, and they thought these boys, if they saw him in his security car, they made have gone with him. That was a train of thought when they went to talk to him. Well, while they're there, Gary drives up, and one of the detectives goes out to talk to him, and he says, why don't you have a seat in my car? And as he does, Gary gets in, and he sees the bottom of his shoe. Well, there was a shoe print left at the scene of the boys in the, in the dirt, and it looked exactly like the bottom of the shoe. So he went in and told his partner, well, we got to get out of here. And they took him downtown, back down to their office. So long story short is they, they I'm going to tell you this whole book company is quiet. <laughs> they take him to, uh, at that time, they didn't have a polygraph operator themselves. They brought him down to Seattle, to the Seattle Police Department polygraph person. And, and it took a while. There was, it, it, this was like a one in the afternoon, but the guy was not in the office. So by the time they got him in the office to talk about it, it was, you know, uh, eight, nine o'clock at night. So he goes into the room with the polygraph operator, and the operator, uh, who was, just ask them preliminary questions. Gary starts crying, and then he tells the operator he killed the two boys. And so and he walks out and tells them he just confessed to killing the boys. And of course, they're like, "What?" And so they go and they take a long statement from him. They have a recorder. They train the recorder to like right into the, right when he's getting to the part where he's telling how he did it. The recorder did not record. It failed to record. Of course, yeah. <laughs> they, they had written notes and they and then they wrote down and wrote out a statement. And then where he confessed to killing the boys, it described in detail how he did it and, and, and was specific about it. And then the polygraph operator says, let me talk to him again. So he kicked him in the room and this, and Gary just all of a sudden starts talking about another girl and he's describing Joanne Zuloff, who, uh, the one who was taking a walk. And he says, I, I came behind her on the trail. I hit her in the head with a rock. Um, and, and then I did this. Like he, he wouldn't admit sexually assaulting any of them or even taking their clothes off. And he said he didn't remember them. I don't remember the cases, but what he told, this is what I wanted to title the book, but the publisher didn't want to do that. Yeah. Is when he talked to the psychiatrist later, he said, when I close my eyes, I can see this, these things happening. So that's what I wanted to be the title of the book, when I close my eyes. But they wanted that title because they wanted it to be regional. So I said, okay. Yeah. But anyway, but it is mentioned that when I close my eyes, I can see these things happening. He denied any knowledge of it. Other than that, but he had a clear picture to describe everything. Well, uh, the polygraph operator, who's long since passed, was pretty sharp because he says, tell me about a girl by a river with a shoelace, because her shoelaces were taken off and strangled with it. And he said, did she have dark, long black hair? Was she stabbed in the back? And he started describing the Carol Erickson murder. Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, you know, they called the King County Sheriff's detective down, and he talked to the guy till 2 in the morning, confessed all these crimes. And then, they, but there were a couple of, there was a twist that they had John Chance already charged. They booked this guy for investigation, of, I mean, for material witness to murder rather than murder, because they already had somebody investigated charged with two of them, so they could dismiss those charges. But then there was even more, more of a, a, a wrench thrown into the works when they found out that the, the attorney came down to talk to, talk to Gary at the Renton Police News in this room. They found out later that the captain of detectives had bugged that room to record all the conversations and recorded the conversation between Gary and his attorney, which is a huge no-no. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was like, oh, my God. They found that out after the fact. So I was scrambling around because the prosecutor's office has to insulate themselves from that 
Does that jeopardize this? This serial killer could walk free because of a mistake like that, right? So there's a lot of legal wrangling, and I was able to, to talk to the judge in the case who's still around. Uh, he's actually the father of the prosecutor I know. And, and then uh, talked to one of the prosecutors and, and the son of one of the others who had a lot of memory about it and how they, they walked that minefield. And they actually charged that captain with illegal recording of a conversation and uh, ended his career. At, at, at Rennes Police Department, and uh, although he ended up getting, he pled guilty and got probation, but it was, and, but they assigned, it took somebody from the Attorney General's office to prosecute that because they didn't want the prosecutor's office to have anything to do with that. Nobody was to listen to that tape, and so they went to trial. And that's basically the gist of the book. Um, so that's the story of the garbage. There's much more detail in the book than I just said. Yeah. <laughs> what would ever possess that? guy to record that conversation. Uh, I just think he was recording all conversations. He didn't set up to record that one. It was already set up. He recorded every conversation in there, and I don't know what it is. You know, he's long past, too. But a couple of detectives said, you know, I don't know. You know, He was a pretty good guy, but he was kind of a control freak, and I don't know what he was thinking. You know, Maybe he didn't know that that was illegal. I mean, I mean it's, in Washington State, it's illegal for anybody. You have, you have to, both people have to, in the room, have to understand that conversation is being recorded. It's not even good enough that the detective knows. So in the interview rooms, like when I worked for Seattle Police Department, in the interview rooms, which are recorded, I'd walk them in there and say, this is a police station. Everything in here is recorded. Do you understand that? Yes. Then I'd leave, right? And then 20 minutes later, I'd come back and have the conversation. But on the recording, I said that. You understand we're being recorded, right? Yes. <laughs> so, because that's the law here. But then to record an attorney in a conversation with us, you know, like if, if we're in those my holding rooms in Seattle, and a guy wants an attorney, and the attorney shows up there. We go in the other room and turn off the recording while the attorney is speaking to him, because we you cannot listen to that. You can't do any of that. That's privileged, you know. And so, and that jeopardizes the entire case. And, but it just like I said, they were able to get it in. It actually got appealed all the way up. They even petitioned the United States Supreme Court, who uh, declined to accept the petition in this case. And Gary Jean Grant is still alive, and he's uh, he's been. 50 years in prison almost, he's in, or actually 48 years in prison, 50 years since the first murder. He's over in Walla Walla Penitentiary, uh, where he's been his entire, since he was 19 years old or 20 years old. So, why, why do you think that's he, the story of the book. Why do you think he went from two girls to two boys, young boys? I just think it was, I, I just think, I don't know. You know, he said, I can't believe I did it, I like boys. But I think it was just his, he was just, his opportunity. Later on, you know, later on, he said, Oh, when I saw those boys, uh, I, I thought of every boy that's ever been mean to me, and I just lashed out. And then, like you said, when he saw Carol Erickson, he later said to a psychiatrist, I pictured my mother, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I don't know. I, the guy is definitely screwed up. He's definitely, you know. Yeah. I don't know I don't know if he's a psychopath, but he's got psychological issues. I'm sure his, his upbringing was not great. That's not an excuse to kill somebody, of course. And, and now his statements are probably more self-serving because at one point he said, I didn't know the, the difference between right and wrong, which conveniently happens to be the uh, the definition of legal insanity as opposed to medical insanity. Yeah. You can be medically insane and legally sane and, and, and go to prison for your acts. But and I don't think he's insane. He's not psychotic. He didn't hear voices or any of that stuff. And I think some of it's maybe, um, you know, uh, him trying to justify it to himself or... or Whatever. I mean, he's never getting out of prison. I mean, there's nothing. It's not like they're going to say, "Oh, yeah, you shouldn't have been there. You're going. You're going. You can go home." 
No, he's never going to prison. He was he was sentenced to four consecutive life terms, so he'll never get out. But you know, they actually sought the death penalty, but the jury did not return the death penalty for him. Wow, that's that's um, quite a story. Um, did you get a chance to talk to him at all? You know, I didn't only because um, shortly after I got all this information, the sheriff's office, who we deal with all the time, have a couple of, you know, found female remains from up in that area from about that time. And I and I was talking to one of them. I said, do you know who Gary Jean Grand is? And they go, no. I said, he was a serial killer working in that area in the 60s and 70s. And your agency investigated. You're kidding me. You know, so I sent them the stuff. And they were going to go over and talk to him. So I didn't want to interfere or get in the middle of that. I want them to be able to talk to him. Cleanly. I don't know. Again, I have no idea if he had anything to do with these other two. I think two other female skeletal remains they found kind of generally in that area from about that time. So, and they were going to go talk to them. And since they were, I wasn't going to do it. If if, if they weren't, I probably would have gone over, at least tried to go over and talk to them. But he's in Walla Walla, the other side of the state for me, 270 miles away. So it's not like he's right here. But I would have, I would have taken the trip over there to talk to him. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, we look forward to that book. Um, Always good. Now, you're still uh, doing the cold case files and stuff like that in Washington, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I work for the Washington State Attorney General's Office, Homicide um, Investigation Tracking System. We can say I'm the chief of that unit. And like, we track all murders in Washington, Oregon, and Montana in our database. But we also um, will we'll, we'll break down cases for agencies, especially small agencies that might have a case. I don't know what to do, and they'll... Uh, They'll call. Can we send you the case, and you can go over it, and, and we'll, and we'll, several of us will independently read this, get together, and make a report of suggestions, and send that over. I'm also involved in it nationally in the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. I'm the uh, director of investigations consulting for that, and that's a national nonprofit, and we do the same thing for any agency in the United States who send us cases. And we have investigators. We have. Uh, DNA experts, we have uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, we have uh, uh, you know, voice pattern recognition people, we have everything like that. And so then they'll send the whole case and we'll go over it and then write a big report. That's that We can fall over the country for that, but that's something I do on the side pro bono. It's not what I do for a living. How, how many cases are you getting a year in Washington State, roughly? As far as murders total? Yeah. I can tell you the I can tell you the exact number if if I had known that in advance I could have my my analyst run the thing for me <laughs> but I'd guess in in the entire state maybe ninety or hundred I'm thinking there's not a lot like I always tell people about this area yeah. there isn't a lot of quantity but there's a lot of quality you know we don't have like Baltimore just yeah. smaller than Seattle but has three hundred and fifty murders or something a year you know because they have a lot of you know gang bang murders and stuff and there that does happen in Seattle. Right. But not at that level. We have a, we have the you know the weird murders, the uh, you know serial killer stuff, or the uh, just weird you know the the uh, yeah. sort of thinking of the I'm trying to think of the weird show that was filmed here years ago, uh, the, the woman with a fire log, but it's that kind of weird stuff. <laughs> 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 just that uh, yeah, not the mainstream stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's I mean there is mainstream stuff, there's regular yeah. stuff. But there's a lot of weird stuff that happens here, and I don't know if it's the water or what. Yeah. It's the weird, kinky homicide stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so cold cases, they come up because they haven't been solved. What, what kind of solve rate do we have um, for these kind of murders? Well, 
lately, I mean, in the last, I, I tell people all the time, in the last 18 months, there has been more advancement to help solve these cases than in the previous 20 years. It just is continuous. We're just left and right, you hear in these cold cases arrested because of things like genealogy, familial DNA, which, by the way, they don't do in my state, which is a big bone of contention. That's where, where you put that, the name and the, the DNA sampling CODIS, which is the uh, national index, and it doesn't pop up. But this guy pops up. He's got a lot of similar markers. This guy's a close relative. You know, so you look at him, and who's his relatives that could be this guy? And you follow those up, and that's how you find people. It's good. You know, California, as screwed up as California is, They've been doing it for 11 years. They've made a lot of great, great arrests in both rapes and murders. But genealogy and doing genetic, uh, forensic genetics and things like that, that's huge. Because they're able to, you know, just not cases that I was talking before down the air, but uh, a case locally here, a 25-year case where a 16-year-old girl was found murdered at her high school on a Saturday morning. And it's, it was a big case in the area. They just made the arrest like a couple weeks ago because it's for genetics. Um, and it's hit nationally all the time. It started with the Golden State case. Well, excuse me. The Golden State Killer was the first big national one. But we had a case in Snohomish County, which is just north of Seattle, that, that was solved that way. And it was the first one to go to trial for the conviction of this guy that killed two uh, teenagers, Canadians, that were down to pick up parts for their dad and, and end up missing the guy. They were both found uh, murdered in different spots. And the girl was raped and murdered. The guy was beaten and murdered and shot. And that, that went to trial a couple of months ago. It was the first one where a genetics was involved to go to trial. Although, I tell people all the time, the genetics is not evidence. So it doesn't really, it isn't really discussed that much in trial. Because you don't, you, that's not your evidence. Your evidence is when you finally find the guy and go down and swab his cheek and have it directly con compared to the DNA you have, that's the evidence. The, right. the genetics only tells you, look at this guy or look at these groups of guys. It's one of them. It's like somebody else. It's no different. Then an informant calling you and says, yeah, this guy's talking about killing it. You go talk to him, you get the DNA, and it matches. It's no different. It's just a scientific equivalent because it's not evidence in and of itself. It's just a lead. And that's what people don't understand. How will this pass in court? Well, it doesn't have to pass in court because you're not introducing that evidence in court. The only evidence you're introducing is when you went and finally got him, you do a verification swab of his buccal cells, and you have that compared directly to the evidence. That's your evidence. It's not the genetics. That's just the lead. That's what got you there. Oh, that's pretty interesting. Wow. So how much access do you have to this kind of DNA with uh, the cold case files? Well, you do. I mean, you, you have to do it through private lab. So, you know, there, there are several. This week, Carabon was pretty much the only one in town, but now Bodhi does it and uh, DNA Solutions. And there's lots of labs that will do it. And that's good because they have competitive pricing, so you can get a better deal. And then, uh, and then, you know, they have they have a menu. If you want this done, you want this done. You know, and each much costs this costs this much, and it's you know, it's not a ton of money. I mean, you know, a few thousand bucks to a small agency that can be a lot, but there are ways to get money for that. You know, and and uh, and so it's just how much do you want to solve the case, right? Yeah. Do you want to spend forty five hundred bucks and solve this cold case? Forty five hundred bucks is nothing. You know, you paid you paid the detectives working this case hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years with forty five hundred bucks, right? <laughs> Pay it and get the thing done. And, you know, and that's assuming that the sample is in there. You may do it, and there's no sample that matches in there. But maybe a week from now or a month from now, one of those guys' relatives will have you know send in a DNA uh, kit, and their name will pop up. 
So you have to actually, what it does, a genealogy, it, it tells you that this person, the donor of the, of the, of the, uh, DNA that was sent to the company is a relative of your, your donor of the evidence. Now they only usually go back to like second cousin or something like that. They have a score. They score it on a sheet. And it has to be a certain number of score before they'll count it as potential. Well, then a, gene- a genealogist looks at that and starts following person death records, marriage records, and all these things. And they, they like, will presume this 95% of the time it's a male, right, that does these murders. So you'll go, it has to be a male. And who are the males in this guy's family? And they'll trace this down and trace that down. And usually end up with, okay, it's one of these four people. And so then the detective has to do the work. The detective goes, okay, how can I eliminate any of these four as being the person? Was he in jail at the time? Do we know he was somewhere else in the world at the time? If not, then they have to go find these people. And usually, either you can ask them for a DNA sample, but usually what happens is they get a surreptitious DNA sample by following the person around. There was a case in Minnesota where a woman was murdered in her, you know, back in the 80s, I think. And they identified this guy, a potential, as a, this soccer dad, suburban guy. I mean, excuse me, hockey dad, suburban guy, right? So they started following him around. He went to a hockey game on some Saturday afternoon, and, and he had some food, and he wiped his mouth with a napkin and threw it in the, in the garbage. They came right behind, picked up the napkin, had it tested, and they go, that's your guy. At that point, you know for sure it's the guy, right? That's, he's, he's an exact match. So then you arrest the guy, you get a warrant, you get another cheek swab to verify it right in front of you that this is the guy, and then you have that, and then that's the, that's the one that's the evidence the final sheet swab you do after you've already identified it. And then they confirm, yes, this is the guy. There was huge probability numbers, you know. When I was working, there were one in 54 quintillion, which, you know, was a huge number, 54 with 18 zeros after. But the numbers now are 54 to the 50th power because they do the 21 little signs instead of just 12 or 13. And uh, so, and that, that that's your guy. I mean, that's, there aren't that many people that have ever lived on the planet Earth in the history of the world. So that's a pretty good bet. Yeah. How how many cold cases do you get to solve a year? Well, again, my job now, I don't solve them. I We make recommendations and send it back to the agency, and it's up to them to follow those things. And and sometimes, they, you know, we did, like, we did some work for that case I was talking about, the 25-year-old murder. We didn't do the heavy lifting, but we did some work for them. But because um, that was a big agency. They had plenty of people on their own. But, you know, we, I don't know. So I can't tell you a for sure answer. I know they uh, they send us issues. We say, you need to do this, 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 and we send it back to them. And then it's up to them to do the work. Although we're talking about potentially, you know, it's in the works now to potentially create an actual cold case investigation unit here where we will send people actually out to help them with the actual legwork. We don't do that right now, but we may in the next year or two. And that's in the works. Because a lot of these agencies, you know, they're so busy. You might have an agency that has three detectives, right? Yeah. And they're so busy with their incoming cases, they don't have time to do the, to do the, I'm not talking about murders, because they do everything, right? Yeah. When you have a department with three or four detectives, they're generalists. They do everything from murder to shoplift. So they're so busy with the other stuff, they don't have time to necessarily stop and go do this stuff. So that's why it would be good if we had people that could go out and actually do hands-on, help them do the work for them or with them, and uh, and make these things move a lot faster. But again, just because I tell you what to do, if you don't have the time to do it, it's not good. Right, you have to find the time. So the eight bigger agencies have dedicated cold case people. Most smaller agencies don't. Yeah. So it's not as hard for a bigger agency as this for smaller. Yeah, yeah, it's about the money. Um, well, uh, Cloyd, now do you have a website or a place that people can find you and find out about your books? I do. 
Yeah, my, my website, oddly enough, is cloydsteiger.com. That's C-L-O-Y-D-S-T-E-I-G-E-R.com. And, of course, I'm on Amazon. I'm on Goodreads. Uh, you can Google my name. I'm on there a lot. I do a lot of podcasts, actually, not about my books, but about about other things, about, you know, just uh, cold case crime investigations and things like that. I'm on podcasts all the time, so... Yeah. That's where you can find me and find information on my book, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. The book will be in bookstores also when it comes out. Um, Target carries it, I think. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Um, we'll have that all linked up to our website so people can go with one click and find you. Um, okay. Well, thank you for being on. I'm glad. To, thank you for having me on. Yeah. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.